One is arguably the quintessential samurai film. The other is arguably the quintessential western. Seven Samurai. They remade it. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of They Remade It. I'm your host, Stuart. And I'm your host, Jacob. Ah, <sighs> nice little evening for a record, isn't it? It's alright. People keep driving up and down my road for no apparent reason. <laughs> Are you, like, on a dead-end road or anything? Or I'm in a suburb. I'm in a cul-de-sac, too, so it's not exactly like people are zipping by. You know, they gotta either they either live here or they gotta turn around. Yeah. <laughs> it's, bu- it's busy this afternoon. I don't fucking get it. This is the way you described it. I was just thinking it's like... It's like, oh, did you live on a dented road? It's like, no, I live right next to the interstate. <laughs> it's like, well, there's a reason people are driving by then. I live off I-29. My mailbox is in the median. <laughs> I just live under the, I just live under the 405. <laughs> just throw the mail out there. I live I'll in a refrigerator it. box under the overpass. <laughs> oh. oh, Jesus. Yeah, it's better than I live. That's a wreck. And you know the worst thing about the worst thing about living under the overcast, the heat. Overcast? The uh, <laughs> it is overcast. What's with all these clouds? <laughs> it's actually pretty sunny here. So ha. Oh uh, well, whatever. Gra- and my grass hut in the middle of a, a metropolitan area. Your grass hut, huh? Okay, it's more like it's like it's like that packing material, but I like glued a bunch of it together, so it's kind of like grass. Well, do you get electricity in your little hovel? And if so, what do you watch on TV? Uh, it's more like, uh, let's just say I sneak up to my neighbor's window and usually just sit out on their, on their, you know, fire escape. Oh, just do, <laughs> just do whatever they're doing? Weirdly enough, they always seem to be watching the movies we need to watch, so it's worked out pretty well. Oh, okay. That's it. See, I tried that once. I don't remember what it was. It might have been Alice in Wonderland, but I almost accidentally came to the show having just watched like 10 episodes of Sanford and son. <laughs> I was like, I'm prepared. I know all about Damon Wilson for this episode. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but uh, uh, BS aside, what, what have you been watching or doing? I guess uh, we generally talk at the top of the show about what we've been watching, but every now and then we venture into what we've been listening, what we've been playing. And I don't have any direct problem with that. So yeah, it's just like the problem was like, it's just so often it's hard to have enough time to watch movies, you know, as actively as I want to. 
So it's a lot easier if I'm listening to like podcasts and everything. And for the most part, it's kind of been the same. I've been watching more. It's pretty much the same as last time. Um, especially given the subject that we'll be, you know, touching on this week. I actually watched a few movies having to do with like samurai and um, like historical films. I don't even remember the name of them. They're just kind of vague ones. Oh, just a bunch of um, Ken Burns documentaries. I got gotcha. you. Essentially. Uh, that one, there was also, but I did watch one movie, it was called The Admiral. It's uh, based on the in, J- Japanese invasion of Korea, which like had, um, what was his name? Uh, Admiral Yi Sun Shin on the Korean side, who's like the, like, debatably the greatest admiral to ever live. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, I know the name. I've read some of those yeah. uh, those Twitter things that go around where it's yeah. like WTF fact. Yeah, I think it's like... In all, in any engagement where he was the sole commander, not only did he never lose a single ship, he never lost a single soldier. Yeah, <laughs> it's like holy shit. What a and obviously, like this is you know older naval battles, and essentially between Korean ships and Japanese ships, it was basically just like floating barges. So it was mostly just like on land fighting, but like on a boat. <laughs> so not as complex as like fucking like you know. The straight up like the straight up Gibraltar fight or whatever the hell or like Admiral Nelson and all that shit. Right. Oh, if only to have been you know to like be there and witness it, but somehow be yeah. protected. You know, I'd sit in the splash zone. Hell yeah. Ah, uh, that's what we need time travel for. Just to watch the blood bla- blood baths. Yes. <laughs> that's all I'd use it for. Yeah. And maybe to say hello to a few people. Yeah. I'm trying. I was trying to think of something funny, like I would go back and do. But now that I think about it, it's like, man, there's not really a whole lot I really want to do in the past or the future. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't do anything. I'd. I'd be like, hey, Caligula, what's going on? <laughs> but essentially, that's more or less it. I'm trying to listen to more podcasts as I find them. I know Magnus Archives just came out with a new episode recently, but I need to go back mm. and listen to it yet. So saw that. Yeah. Yeah, otherwise that's basically it. I'm not a very interesting person. Oh, okay. All right. Well, what about you? Well, for me, I have two things, neither of them films. I didn't watch any films during this little period. I'm sorry. I mean, whatever. I I, I barely watched anything. <laughs> uh, The next one we're doing, because we plan a couple of these well in advance, Uh, what we're going to do so that we have time you know, to sit through and prepare, uh, retrieve them in some cases, as we've seen in the past, it can be kind of hard to find some of these. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Uh, depending on what we pick. It will uh, never but, be, you know, it will never be as hard as the anime fucking Metropolis for me. My God. <laughs> oh, we won't rehash it because we talk about it on the Metropolis episode, but boy, we both had to jump through some interesting hoops. Yeah. I went uh, to, to get that. I should have just bought a physical copy. I went to some weird corners of the internet for that one. <laughs> I would have bought a physical copy, but it was just just at the start of quarantine, and I had no idea if it would get here in time. Mm. Uh, things were very uncertain. <laughs> but uh, anyways, getting getting to sort of what I've done, I the uh, so as of recording this, I think it's only been about a week. Actually, I think it's been a week to the day since it came out, but uh, the newest and I believe last DLC for Control came out and I completed it in about a day. Oh, huh. I forgot about that. Because I I 
and I won't go too much into it because we talked about it on the show last year when the game came out and we both played it, but I just, I love that game to death and I don't exactly know why. I haven't sat down to think about what it is about it that intrigues me, but I I know I mentioned it in passing on the show, but I I don't often when I play games listen to the soundtrack or the dialogue that's being spoken. I'll have subtitles on so I can follow the plot, but I'm usually listening to YouTube videos or podcasts or whatever. There's there's actually a cute little game called Rhyme on PS4 I completed three or four years ago that I entirely associate with the Howard Stern show because I was just listening to Howard Stern while I played it. Huh. Uh, and that's mostly what I do. But for some reason, this, uh, and I don't know if it's just the atmosphere, the SCP sort of connections, but I listened to everything in that game. Even if it was just silence, me running down a corridor, I had my headphones plugged into the jack on my PlayStation controller, and I just listened. Yeah. And I read everything I found. I watched everything I found. It felt so personable, you know. You'll find collectibles in a game that are like newspaper clippings, and it's like, yeah, whatever. But these are like internal memos most of the time. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I read, I ingested everything, and it's the same exact thing with this DLC. And now that it's over, I'm like, I just, I need whatever the next thing they're going to do is. And I know they're going to. I think my level of charm for it always came from the idea of, I've always loved the idea of like the fantastical and the absurd being pulled through the, you know, being like the, the fantastical and the absurd meeting the oppressively sterile. And so it's like the idea of having, and this goes along with the, you know, the SCP uh, wiki and everything, but like the idea mm-hmm. that th- that these insane objects that would defy all logic and could be a story all on their own are being are able to be like categorized and filed away like norm like it, like the weirdest parts of bureaucracy. It's just like it's so fascinating to me just to see how that goes. Like it went back as far as. I think Artemis Fowl for me when like they like the idea that leprechauns are actually the LEP recon team. It's like, that's a hilarious and B really interesting. (laughs) So it's just, you know, it's shit like that. It's like, you know, kind of the antithesis to stuff like Harry Potter, where it's like, so into its own fantasy. Whereas in this one, it's like, it's almost ashamed of its own fantasy. And so it has to make it meet this like super, you know, ultra brutalistic, style and everything and that's what i love the most about control is just like this omnipresence of you know concrete and you know all these like older very bureaucratic you know devices and everything just meeting all these things that are just absurd and everything it's like you know you have all these in other games you'd see you know all these magical graphics and everything whenever you shoot everything but in here it's almost like everything is like made with like a compass or something no i agree i just i yeah I had to ingest it as quickly as I could and get, just do it. And so just, it took me, I think nine or 10 hours, but just over a period of two days, uh, the evening after work and then the afternoon after work the next day, I just completed the, the entire DLC (laughs) and it's all about Alan Wake, which I've never played either of the Alan Wake games, but I have passing familiarity with them. Mm. So it's nice that they're sort of bringing their franchises together and twisting everything, which th- there were hints of Alan Wake stuff in the core game, but this was full on. Uh, the universes are connected. So yeah. that was interesting to see too. Yeah. Um, so I did that. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, something else, I've never done this before because I've never had any interest to. Um, I listened to an audiobook. Ooh, you're you're coming to my side of the pond. <laughs> I I actually read a fair amount. I'm I'm in the middle of a book on Carol O'Connor right now, and I have my eyes on an uh an autobiography by Pat Cooper. Uh, so I usually read these, but uh, I've been wanting to read Jackie Martling, the comedian, <laughs> funny enough, because I was just talking about Howard Stern, mm-hmm. uh, the comedian, he's had an autobiography out for a while and I've been wanting to read it, but I saw that he, he did the audiobook himself. Uh, he recorded it. So, and I like his voice. I think he's a funny guy. So I bought that. And within a week, every time I was driving to and from work, I listened to it and I sat through the whole thing. And I don't have too much to say on uh, the book itself. It's it's a good book, and he's a funny guy, don't get me wrong. It's just there's not much I can say about it that you wouldn't better get just by reading or listening to him read that book. I gotcha. Uh, it was just an interesting experience for me because that's the first time I've ever listened to an audiobook uh, all the way through. I've tried in the past, but I couldn't get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if I come across more biographies in the future that are read by the people that wrote them. Uh, and obviously if I have an interest in that person, I think I might uh, give it a chance. It was, it was neat. It was just like, you know, a prolonged podcast. And like I talked about last time, with the exception of the Magnus archives, everything I listen to podcast wise is nonfiction. So uh, that that's what I'm interested in. Nice. So maybe I'll do more of that in the future. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I myself am still going through Stephen Fry's Greek mythology book, so. Oh, boy. Very, very lovely voiced man. He is. I'm just hearing him talk. He should do more games. Yeah. (laughs) And just hearing him talk about, like, all these, like, very explicit subjects that come along with Greek mythology is just always very funny. Just talking about, like, oh, and then he fucked a cow. (laughs) (laughs) Zeus was a big guy, wasn't he? He he obviously didn't, you know, say it in such words, but, you know, (laughs) that's... (laughs) That was the gist, right? He he's he's a bit wryer than that. Absolutely, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Can't freaking tell. He's also much more eloquent than I am, evidently. Which that's going to be a real fun treat for me here in a second, because who boy, we got some movies today. <laughs> do you guys like Japanese names? <laughs> I know I do. Weirdly enough, I do genuinely love saying Japanese names. It's just it's always hard for me whenever I realize, oh yeah, I have to say a lot of them. Plus a plot. <laughs> and then after that, I have to name even more with at least a shorter plot and a Western. So it's about half difficulty. <laughs> I, I I like foreign names, but I do not like saying them. Because even if I research how to pronounce it, I feel like I'm fucking it up every time. Oh, absolutely. So <laughs> It's best to get, just to give a good college try. <laughs> yep, and just say, I'm trying here. I'm sorry. <laughs> so... To that effect, I proudly present, for some reason, to my own mental health, Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven.
begin with 1954's Seven Samurai, directed by the famous Akira Kurosawa. Bandits discuss raiding a mountain village, but their chief decides to wait until after the harvest as they had already raided it recently. They are overheard by a farmer, whereupon the villagers ask Gisaku, the village elder and miller, for advice. He states that he once saw a village that hired local samurai and remained untouched by raiders, and declares they, declares they should also hire samurai in order to defend them. Since they have no money and can only offer food as payment, Gisaku advises them to find hungry samurai. After having little initial success, the scouting party watches Kambei, played by Takashi Shimura, a, an aging but experienced ronin, that's a samurai without a leader, rescue a young boy who had been held hostage by a cornered thief. A young samurai named Katsushiro, played by Iseo Kimura, asks to become Kampei's disciple. The villagers then ask for help, and after initial reluctance, Kambei agrees. He recruits his old friend Shichiroji, played by Daisuke Kato, and, with Katsushiro's assistance, three other samurai. The friendly wily Gorobe, played by Yoshio Inaba, the good-natured Haihachi, played by Minoru Chiaki, and Kyozo, played by Saiji Miyaguchi, a taciturn master swordsman whom Katsushiro regards with some amazing amount of awe. Although inexperienced, Katsushiro is accepted because time is short. Kikuchio, played by Toshiri, Toshiri Muf Mifune, a wild and unpredictable man who carries a family scroll that he claims to prove he is a samurai, though the birth date on it is for a teenager, so he's clearly not, follows the group despite attempts to drive him away. On arrival, the samurai find the villagers cowering in their homes, refusing to greet them. Feeling insulted by the cold reception, Kikuchio rings the village alarm, prompting the villagers to come out of hiding and beg for protection. The samurai are both pleased and amused by this, and accept him as a comrade-in-arms. Slowly, the samurai and farmers begin to trust each other as they train together. Katsushiro forms a relationship with Shino, played by Kaiko Tsushima, a farmer's daughter, who is masquerading at her father's insistence as a boy for protection from the supposedly lustful samurai. However, the six professional samurai are angered when Kikuchio brings them armor and weapons, which the villagers most likely acquired, killing injured or dying samurais. Kikuchio retorts in a rage that the samurai are responsible for battles, raids, taxation, and forced labor that devastate the villagers' lives. By doing so, he inadvertently reveals his origin as an orphaned farmer's son. The samurai's anger quickly turns to shame. Soon after, three bandit scouts are spotted. Two are killed, while another reveals the location of their camp. Against the wishes of the samurai, the villagers kill the prisoner, and subsequently, the samurai burn down the bandit's camp in a preemptive strike. Rikichi, played by Yoshio Tsuchiya, a troubled villager who helps the samurai, breaks down when he sees his wife, who had apparently been kidnapped and made a concubine in a previous raid. On seeing Rikichi, she walks back into the burning hut. Haihachi is then quickly killed by, a mus by musket fire while trying to save Rikichi, whose grief is confounded. When the bandits finally attack, they are confounded by the new fortifications, including a moat and wooden fence put up by the villagers. Several bandits are killed following Kambei's plan of allowing single horse-mounted bandits to enter the village at a time, when they are trapped and killed by groups of farmers armed with bamboo spears. Gisaku's family tries to save the old man when he refuses to abandon his mill on the outskirts of the village. All perish but a lone baby who is rescued by Kikuchio, who breaks down in tears as it reminds him of how he himself was orphaned. Meanwhile, the samurai and villagers are being hounded by bandits possessing three muskets. Kyozo ventures out alone one evening and returns with one. However, an envious Kikuchio Kikuchio abandons his post and contingent of farmers to bring back another. He is chastised by Kambei because, while he was gone, the bandits killed some of his farmers. 
The bandits attack again, and Gorobe is slain as they lead a counterattack. That night, Kambe predicts that, due to their dwindling numbers, the bandits will have to make one last all-out attack the next morning. Meanwhile, Katsushiro and Shino's relationship is discovered by her father. He beats her until Kambe and the villagers intervene. Shichiroji calms everyone down by saying that the couple should be forgiven because they are young and that the passions can run high before any battle. The next morning, in a torrential downpour, Kambe orders the remaining 13 bandits be allowed into the village all at once. As the battle winds down, their leader, armed with a musket, hides in the women's hut and shoots Kyozo from a distance. An enraged Kukichio charges in and is shot point-blank, but subsequently kills the bandit before he finally dies. The rest of the invaders are then soon after slain. The three surviving samurai later watch from the funeral mounds of their comrades as the joyful villagers sing while planting their new crops. Kambe reflects that it is another Firic victory for the warriors. In the end, we lost this battle too. The victory belongs to the peasants, not us, he says, as the final shot rests upon the burial mounds of their four companions. Now, after that vocal warm-up, <laughs> we'll move on to the 1960 Magnificent Seven, directed by John Sturges. And as this is a pretty direct remake, albeit with different locations and a few plot points differences, I'm not going to be going too deep into the plot, as it's more or less the same, but I will touch on some of the bigger differences. Now being set in the American Wild West, it centers around a gang of bandits led by one Calvera, periodically raiding a poor Mexican village for food and supplies. After the latest raid, during which Calvera kills a local villager, the village leaders decide that they've had enough and have to go search for cowboys and guns in order to help protect them. This eventually brings them along the path of one Chris Larrabee Adams, played by Yul Brynner. The Mexican villagers are impressed by Mr. Adams' abilities, a veteran Cajun gunslinger, and approach him for advice. Chris suggests that they hire, instead hire gunfighters rather than just guns to defend the village, as men are cheaper than guns, in his words. Reluctantly beginning to lead the group, they come across a series of gunfighters in the forms of one Vin Tanner, played by Steve McQueen, who has gone broke after a round of gambling and resists local efforts to be recruited as a grocery store clerk. Chris's own friend Harry Luck, played by Brad Dexter, who assumes Chris is hiding a much bigger reward for the ultimately menial work. A once prosperous soldier, Bernardo Bernardo O'Reilly, played by Charles Bronson, who has fallen now fallen on hard times. Britt, played by James Coburn, an expert in both knife and gunplay, who joins purely for the challenge it would be involved. And the dapper on the run gunman Lee, played by Robert Vaughn, plagued by nightmares of fallen enemies and haunted that he has lost his nerve for battle. On their way to the village, however, they are also trailed by one hot-headed Chico, played by Horst Buchholz, Buchholz, an aspiring gunslinger whose previous attempts to join Chris had been spurred. Impressed by his persistence, Chris invites him into the group. And it should be said, Chico is actually a combination of the two characters of Kukichio and Katashiro. So it's combining the reckless wannabe character with the young upstart who is ultimately the male love interest for the movie. Pretty neatly ties it together, but it makes for some weird character moments in the honest. From here on, it pretty directly follows the plot of Seven Samurai up until maybe about the last third of the movie of them arriving at the village and ingratiating themselves, encountering the three scouts, yada yada yada. Um, Chico falls in love with a local woman, but, you know, it's Plus, plus being the hot-headed guy, so it's kind of weird. Plus, they're also like weirdly kind of like 
accusatory toward the woman. It's like really uncomfortable. But I'll go ahead and pick it up at about the last third mark. So that, you know, the last of the differences can really be kind of put to, you know, put to tape, as it were. Some days after the three scouts are dispatched, Calvera and his bandits actually arrive in force. The seven and the villagers kill another eight of their cohort in a shootout and run them out of town. The villagers celebrate, believing Calvera will not return. But Chico infiltrates Calvera's group and learns that Calvera must soon return as his men are about to run out of food. Some fearful villagers thereupon call on the gunfighters to leave. Even some of the seven start to waver, but Chris insists that they stay, even threatening to kill anyone who suggests giving up the fight. The seven ride out to make a surprise raid on Calvera's camp, but find it abandoned. Returning to the village, they are caught by Calvera and his men, who have colluded with some villagers to sneak in and take complete control. Calvera spares the seven's lives, believing that they have learned the simple farmers are not worth fighting for, and fearing reprisals from the gunfighters' friends from across the border. Preparing to depart, Chris and Vin admit that they have been emotionally become emotionally attached to the village. Bernardo likewise gets angry when the boys he befriended called their parents cowards. Chico declares that he hates the villagers. When Chris points out that he grew up as a farmer as well, Chico angrily responds that it was men like Calvera and Chris who made the villagers what they are in the first place. The seven gunmen are escorted some distance from the village, where their weapons are then returned to them. They debate on their next move, and all but Harry, and all but Harry, who believe the effort to be futile and suicidal, agree to return and fight. The gunmen infiltrate the village, and, and a massive gunfight starts to break out. Harry, who had has now had a change of heart, returns in time to save Chris's life, but he is himself fatally shot. Harry pleads to know what they were really fighting for, and Chris lies about some hidden gold mine to let Harry believe that he had died for a fortune. Lee finds the nerve to burst into a house where several villagers are being held, shooting their captors and releasing the prisoners to join the fight, but is quickly gunned down as he leaves the home. Bernardo, shot protecting the boys he befriended, tells them as he dies to see how bravely their fathers fought. Britt dies after shooting at many bandits, but exposing himself from cover. Chris shoots, Cal shoots Calvera, who asks him, him why he came back to to the village. He dies without receiving an answer. However, the remaining bandits then run from the area. The three surviving gunmen ride out of town. As they stop atop a hill overlooking the village, Chico parts company with them, realizing he wants to stay with the local girl Petra. Chris and Vin bid farewell to the village elder, who tells them that only the villagers have really won whereas the gunslingers are like wind blowing on a land and passing on. As they pass the gra graves of their fallen comrades, Chris admits that the old man was right, that the farmers have won, and that we will always lose. That's your lot. I bit my tongue multiple times throughout that, so that sucked. <laughs> it should be noted, Seven Samurai is a three and a half hour movie. I'm not saying I regretted it, but it, there is a lot to it, and there's a lot of moments of like very genuine moments between the villagers and the samurai. So... You know, I'm not doing the story justice, even with that summary. Mm -hmm. It's very, yeah, very long. Very Ten Commandments-esque in its length. Yeah, shit. <laughs> oh, with, with, funnily enough, has Yul Brynner in it also. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> Forgot about that. What are you going to do? He he does it. He makes them longer somehow. <laughs> with a name like that, it's like, if you say his name backwards, I feel like it like releases a demon. It sends him back to the Dimension X <laughs> the fifth dimension that's what it is <laughs> oh anyways uh, <laughs> yeah I, I have no idea how much full circle there could be on this one but hey go for it uh not a lot but yeah we'll get into it okay so f uh first what should be said in this may be obvious 
Uh, we have three, and all of them are for the Magnificent Seven. We don't have any... Uh, somehow, we don't have any connections to the Seven Samurai. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine if we do another Kurosawa, which I think there have been other remakes of, um, we'll probably start getting some stuff. But otherwise... Yeah, I'm not sure, but I do uh I do know that some of those some of those guys have been in like Yojimbo or Rashomon, so they they are shared across those. If if there are remakes of those movies, I'm not positive. I think there yeah. might be reimaginings of Rashomon, but that's aside from the point, I I suppose. So firstly among these we have Eli Wallach, who was uh Calvera, the leader of the bandit gang in the Magnificent Seven. And he was Don Altabello in The Godfather Part 3. Uh, oh. <laughs> of if, all the things. If anyone doesn't remember Don Altabello, which, even though he's a main character, it's Godfather 3, so I understand. It's also like 20 years after this movie, so I imagine he's pretty old. Oh yeah, that's true, but, I mean, he played an older character. Uh, oh. But but you have trouble if you have trouble remembering him, he is the one who dies choking on cannolis. Oh yeah. That have been poisoned. So, um... Next, we have James Coburn, who we've brought up in Full Circle before. Uh, he was Brit in The Magnificent Seven. He was also Harlan Hartley in uh, The Eddie Murphy Nutty Professor, way <laughs> after the fact. Yeah, Jesus. And he was also the cafe owner of El Slizo in 1979's The Muppet Movie, which, of course, being The Muppets, had a wide variety of of famous celebrities, so it's bound to constantly come up in full circle. Yeah. And lastly, a little smaller, we have Roberto Contreras, Contreras, maybe, who was uncredited as a villager in The Magnificent Seven, but he played Rebenga in Scarface 1983. Alrighty. Also, well after the fact. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. A lot of gaps with this one. (laughs) All of these other appearances are... Minimum 19 years. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This was an interesting pair of movies. Like, I can't say these are unknowns for me for The Magnificent Seven, because I've at least heard of Charles Bronson and whatnot, and Steve McQueen, obviously. But beyond that, it's just like, man, I don't recognize really any of these people. I know oh, they're really? famous, though. Like, I know Yul Brenner, obviously, but... Yeah. I mean, yeah, man, I went into this... I. I know a lot of those old movies have shared casts, and I was aware of The Magnificent Seven. I didn't know it had such a cast. Yeah. I mean, with the exception of, uh, what is his name, Horst Buckles and uh, Brad Dexter, those two, I did not know. But Hmm. everybody else, I mean, Steve McQueen, obviously, you know, like The Great Escape. Uh, Yeah. Eli Wallach is the villain we've talked about. James Coburn, Charles Bronson, I mean, Death Wish, and Robert Vaughn, the man from Uncle, which just got a movie, I think, last year or the year before. Like, all of these people are huge names. I think Man from Uncle was a few years ago. It may have been. I didn't see yeah. it. I just remember being like, oh, wow, we're uh, doing a movie on that, huh? But It wasn't, uh, um, it wasn't amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well there you go i'm glad i didn't see it but yeah he yeah. was he was the man from uncle so like huh. all of these people were were famous at the time too i mean this came out before he was the man from uncle but he he still had other roles like mm-hmm. these were well-established people gotcha i just i'll need to see more stuff on that That's note the point uh, of the show <laughs> on that note i'm gonna take another long drink of water if you want to give any of your 
initial points for either two movies beyond just the you know cast list mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> just listing actors um so something you did bring up when you were talking about it and i'm glad you did because it was it was going to be my first point regardless of whether you did is uh i enjoyed both of these for different reasons yes but it was uh even though it was a little slow especially in the middle Magnificent Seven was so much easier to digest because it's not even just that it's a shorter runtime, but it's because they condense all of these things and they make them more manageable, but it doesn't feel like they're leaving out important details. Yeah. You know, they don't linger on things for an obsessive amount of time, uh, which can have a long scenes can have lasting impact if done correctly. And I'm not saying that Kurosawa did them incorrectly. But they definitely knew when they were making the Magnificent Seven how to condense things mm-hmm. and and, and uh, what to lop out, what to merge together. The character, which I was going to bring up, I, I didn't know you were going to mention it in the plot synopsis, um, but the character of Chico uh, being a combination of the, the two characters in Seven Samurai, the hothead and the uh, the upstart, did lead to some odd, confusing conflicts of character, I feel. So uh, I think that was the one failing of the condensing of the plots. But outside of that, I think they did a good job. See, and like, I want to agree for the most part, but it's it's just that whenever I was watching, I ended up watching Magnificent Seven first, just because I figured it'd be easier to digest the Western one first. Um... It just, it felt a lot of times like the characters were felt kind of rushed. Like, and I say that as if, you know, in Seven Samurai, it's hard to, like, no matter how long your fucking movie is, it's hard to have seven distinct main characters just to have them going on and everything, plus all the side characters along with them. But I just, all the guys in The Magnificent Seven, I never really got to learn to love with the exception of like Brit, because it pretty much is just like, I don't need a character arc. I'm just good at shit. And that's pretty much all I need to do. And it's like, fair enough. That's fine. Um, you know, Yul Brenner's character kind of was forgettable for me. I definitely think Eli Wallach, the Calvera character was among my favorite, either that or maybe, or either that or maybe, you know, uh, Chico. Cause I think Chico was probably like, as the same with, you know, Yukiochi, uh, Yukiochi, Kiki, Kikuchio, 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 Jesus, God in heaven, I'm I'm so sorry, Japan, I'm I'm an, again, we've mentioned it before, I'm a Scotch Irishman, I am not good at this, <laughs> um, but yeah, Chico and Kikuchio, you know, obviously are meant to hold up the definitely the soul the the core soul of each of these groups um so i it's hard to dislike them wholly but it's just going through just the landslide of character development that was seven samurai it's just it's hard for me to really compare the two because you know it's magnificent seven it's like you know it very much feels like it's trying to tell a a distinct story whereas seven samurai it's like it's trying to tell a story about these people 
Yeah, it, it just it really does have that impression. You know, you really do get to see these guys start to get to know each other and kind of build this trust and like wary forms of honor between the you know between all of them and how they you know got to ingratiate themselves with the villagers, how they you know were able to kind of break their own samurai taboos to kind of bring down to not be such to, you know to put it in the technical term to not have such long sticks up their asses um <laughs> just you know in the most honorable sense obviously and so it was just it was just it was hard to not feel enraptured the entire time especially kikuchio's character just the just the knockdown drag out performance i think uh toshiro mifune gave for it it's like every time he was on screen it's like jesus christ this guy is going through the range of emotions and you know i think that's just that's a very distinctly a very distinctly japanese style of just how ecstatically they can express their emotions throughout it and i think it just also lends itself with the language how it just can be very pointed whenever you get down to it whereas in you know more american movies they can kind of feel a bit a bit like they don't give a shit you know, like, especially for Western movies where it's like their whole character is meant to be like pretty much all cowboys to one degree or another are like he's competent, but he doesn't really give a damn. And anytime you have a character who isn't like that, it almost stands out too much. Like notably like Chico or Lee, since they're respectively a hothead and selfish. So, right. It's it's the it's the ironic situation of. Every single character is a trope, but if they aren't a trope, they stick out and aren't don't feel as good. So it's just it, it's weird seeing just the dynamic differences between the characters. Right. Which, yeah, I see where you're coming from. I I guess I I feel slightly different about it, though. Maybe I'll have to process exactly why and maybe that'll come to me at some point, because mm. The most I can say for the characters that they try to do in the Magnificent Seven is that they did ru- through their condensing. They rush through it more so that the characters are like, okay, this is the archetype they're associated with, so that they can stand out. Here's maybe some backstory, or maybe not. If they don't need it, you just know what they're about, so they can that they can move it along. And it feels like that's a na- a bit of a natural progression, whether for better or for worse, from the way mm. that the Seven Samurai did it, because it is the. Uh, assembling the crew you know yeah a time-honored trope now yes it's become more prevalent over the years and if you get right down to it the more it's used the more hurriedly they go through that process to the point where unless it's like a, a sequel heist movie where they're going around being like one more job unless it's something hackneyed like that uh the gathering of the crew is usually an assemblage of people that the main character already knows about they already knows who they are and you don't get to see them really being recruited it's just like a montage of like we need the hacker or the computer expert the driver yeah. it's a quick montage of them doing stuff uh which is sort of what oceans did um yeah it's absolutely what oceans so, did so uh so it just it feels like there's less development than seven samurai, but more than things in the future. So I feel like that's just the natural progression of, okay, you know what this trope is. We need to do it. So I, I don't, I guess I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing, especially because they, they all didn't feel rushed to me when I was watching it. I knew they were, but I didn't get that impression with the exception of, uh, Robert Vaughn's character, Lee. I didn't really 
buy into the character he was playing i guess his was the only backstory that really for me stuck out like a sore thumb and i was like eh, maybe we could have rewritten him a bit uh yeah and i guess i guess i do give it a bit too much of a bad rep i did really like charles bronson's character i think he was just you know kind of the the heart of the group at a certain point i was like okay yeah he was actually pretty cool he's definitely he's probably he's probably definitely my next favorite of them because you know you have to start picking favorites once there's seven exactly that's that's what the fandoms do but uh but talking about the seven samurai i guess i had a bit of a different reaction than you did because i i didn't hate any of the characters and i didn't think any of their stories were like you know oh that was rushed together that doesn't really fit or oh that's a worn out trope especially because you know it set a lot of precedents how can you be (laughs) committing trope crimes if you're making the tropes or inventing them um, god damn god damn it kurosawa leave some for the rest of us <laughs> we need those too uh but for the but i didn't really get invested in any of the samurai characters except i will say um for kyuzo yep i was i was gonna say it's like I and, it's gonna be kyuzo <laughs> and uh kikuchio because they kind of make him the main character after a while you know, yeah. he gets to, he gets to do all of the big things, which is weird because for the longest time, you know, you consider Ketsushiro to be the main character. But then with the exception of the love story, he kind of falls away a bit, um, yeah. which is inter- an interesting choice. I didn't see that coming. But all of the others I didn't really care about. And I don't feel like we got a lot of screen time with them to fully know their character. Like Hayachi died fairly early compared to the other samurai i say fairly early it was like two hours in or something but um but yeah he was the first to die and pretty randomly in fact yeah he was the first to go it was random and i maybe maybe it's because there wasn't a whole lot to his character but i sat there for like five minutes and i ended up having to look it up because i couldn't remember what his character trait was supposed to be right I, i even forgot how they picked him up uh, and that was just my experience. It, it was it was hard for me to get into a lot of those characters. Whereas with for me with Magnificent Seven, Yul Brenner didn't leave much of an impact because I guess he didn't have to. Uh, he yeah. should have because he was treated as the main character uh, outside of Chico, but he he's more so the the ringmaster who's pulling everyone together. But I like Charles Bronson, and uh, even though he didn't do a whole lot he, he was there for a lot of it i liked um uh brit uh steve mcqueen's character uh um, vin yeah yeah uh, i mean if you're, if you're talking brit that was a james coburn's character oh well who was steve mcqueen's character uh that was vin he was like the the second in command yeah type. yeah i liked vin see i don't re- <laughs> that's how fucked up i am i don't remember character names too well i remember actors i know that i, I liked steve mcqueen but that was vin so yeah. uh I mean, James Coburn was good, too, in my opinion. He was mm. the uh, Shichiroji character. Or not yeah. Shichiroji. Uh, um, Kyuzo. Oh, so, yeah. I'm getting all these mixed up. But <laughs> can anyone listening follow this? <laughs> <laughs> if, if you can, I will be shocked. But, you know, it pops to you for trying. <laughs> I think, you know, but that, that is a nice little leads to take us on away from characters i think probably on to just kind of the differences of the plot and but when i say differences i guess i also mean similarities because that is kind of the main reason i the main reason i really wanted to do this movie was just we've done a lot of movies on here 
where we explicitly talk about, you know, a an Asian-made movie turned into an American remake or vice versa. And us talking about how much gets lost in translation, how much gets, you know, shifted back and forth. And inevitably, like we mentioned last time, that there would inevitably be some way for The Departed to get brought back up. But, you know, here we are. Yeah. Um, which I figured, I, when I'm going into this, I was like, oh, yeah, fuck, I'm going to have to bring it up. Oh, well. Um, but it, it, I wanted to do, do this movie because it basically touched on the trope that I, you know, learned about not too terribly long about the idea that samurai and cowboy movies are basically exactly the same. And it's super cool to see the just pure similarities between the two cultures. It was just, it's like, I really wanted to be like, like someone really like point out somewhere online. And I seriously had never thought about it. You know, they were doing, I think they showed a clip from a super, super cheesy um, Japanese movie, but it was centered around, cowboys like they were japanese cowboys and i was like this is odd and someone pointed out in the comments it was like it's like you you might find this odd like very similar to what you watch because most westerns at one point or another were based on old samurai stories and i was like what (laughs) (laughs) i seriously had never put it together and then i just started looking into it more and more that's one of the main reasons i was watching the more historical films about it lately is like yeah these are insanely similar topics and it's super fascinating to me so it's just, you know, that was the main reason I wanted to be able to do this one, just to be able to kind of see the similarities of, you know, the moments of, are we truly so different between these cultures? Because <laughs> it's like, if you told me one way or the other, if, you know, Magnificent Seven were all in black and white, and you told me it was the original and Seven Samurai was the remake, I would have believed you. I would have been like, okay, cool, this is just a Japanese reimagining of a cowboy story. It's like, it, it's, it's a kind of rare situation where as far as at least content of the culture or like the cultural content for the movie, it's basically one-to-one, you know, we've had moments like with, you know, Infernal Affairs and The Departed where so much of it is changed just by the attitude and especially by the endings that it can really not really be equated. But with these two, they're so similar just not not even literally with their plot, but culturally, that it's really fascinating to see. It's a it's it's a rare it's a rare treat. Right. No, I agree. And I mean, even down to I mean, the dialogue. A lot yeah. of what happens with the dialogue is the same, just slightly tweaked. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the ending of both of the movies. They say the same things, just in slightly. And I, when I say slightly, I literally mean slightly different words. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, and it's crazy to see all the tropes that had begun in samurai movies that get brought into, you know, Western movies. You know, the idea of the, you know, learning the character's skill by watching him have a duel, like the quick draw duel. We get that with between Kyozo and Brit, and, you know, you see that in basically every cowboy movie from that point onward, the idea of, you know, the quick draw. Right. And I've seen scenes from other Kurosawa movies where, you know, it basically, all you would have to do is put a cowboy hat on these characters and put them into English. And it could, 
like like put cowboy hats on them and give them guns instead of swords and it just is a western movie it's not even like oh it's like uh, with a little bit of tweaking it's like no if they had guns instead of swords and were wearing hats it would be a western <laughs> that's it <laughs> it's like how easily can you shift between two essentially vastly different genres with such a little tweak it's just it's it's the coolest thing in the world to me <laughs> No, I mean, that. yeah, that is cool. And I have to say, I, I may have heard that or read that somewhere at some point in time, but it it does strike me because uh, I, I didn't really get that connection. I didn't know there was that association beforehand necessarily because uh, I can't say I'm too well-versed in samurai films, but I am definitely not well-versed in Western films. <laughs> I've, I've never really been able to get into them. Uh I didn't see All Quiet on the Western Front until, uh, or not that, no, it wasn't that. It was uh, The yeah, Good, no, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, say, that's like a war that, movie. But, yeah, that's World War One, bro. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I Sometimes I get the, well, it just sounds like a Western title, but it was The Good, oh, the Bad, yeah. and the Ugly. And I saw that um, my sophomore year of college is when I first saw it. And I was like, oh, this is a great film. Because my only experience with Western stuff up to that point we're going over would be like going over to a relative's house and just having John Wayne films play on the bat play in the background. I'm like, I really don't like these. I don't like the yeah. just the, the feeling, the dialogue. It's slow. It looks, it doesn't look too great. Yeah. Those, it, it, the super like cheesy ones that you get, like the earlier, the Western movie you can find, the better it's going to be, honestly. And that's kind of the case in this one. It, it, this one has a bit of the John Wayne, issues just like you know how kind of languid it can feel at times um and just how much like with the overly jubilant jubilative music it's like oh it's america and we're having this free and grand adventure whereas in good the bad the ugly it's like we're in a hellish territory and people are killing each other it's like okay cool i like i like it when it's actually a bit more raw like that and i think that's why i got drawn to a lot of samurai movies and just samurai stories in general because you know, just being well-versed, okay, being versed on the general time period that Seven Samurai is meant to be set, that being the Warring States period that's, like, in the, like, from the early 13, no, 15, from the early 1500s to, like, the mid to late 1500s, um, just the amount of chaos going on in the region, it's just, it was fascinating just to learn about the stories like that, because, like, stories, you know, Actual events like Seven Samurai happened. It's like that's based on actual, not necessarily based on literal events, but you know there are similar accounts you can probably find. Well, right. It's I mean it's not wild or out yeah, of no. control. It's it's culturally and historically accurate to the period. So I mean you can see people acting that way and doing those actions, yeah. even if it's not based on literal things. Like there's probably similar accounts, um, mm. as you said. But I mean, I I did really enjoy uh, for as weird as some of the choices felt because uh, because of what I knew I was getting into with this being a remake, even though I watched this one before I watched Seven Samurai, I knew this one was the remake. So I maybe I was looking out for things mm. like, oh, that could be a change. That could be an alteration to make it more American or whatever. Um, with the exception of those little things that I think I picked up on, I really did enjoy uh, The Magnificent Seven, and it made me want to go out and look into more 
Western films and watch them. Because I feel really bad, but I wrote off the entire genre for the longest time because of those old John Wayne movies. I didn't even know that like Italian directors and spaghetti Westerns existed until around the time I was starting college. Because I was like, I don't want to pay attention to that genre at all. I'm not watching films from it. I don't care. Which was a bit of a disservice, but I mean, what are you going to do? I am so happy about that because like early on in this series, I think when we did True Grit, you had mentioned a similar thing of like, I just, you just really aren't a fan of Westerns and everything. And I was just kind of like, you know, you got to watch the good ones essentially. Or like I was trying to hoping beyond hope that I could kind of draw you towards it. And now I have. You did because <laughs> you picked a good old one. I really, really yeah. enjoyed the Coen brothers take on True Grit. But yeah. that's a modernization of a Western movie, you know, and I don't have a problem with modern movies. I'll go out and watch them. But oh, yeah, the modern Coen Brothers True Grit, it wasn't going to make me go back and watch older Westerns. Um, oh, yeah, exactly. And that's and that's kind of what it, like where my earlier failing was. I just didn't think about more, you know, I didn't know about more possible remakes to work with. I long hadn't realized that, you know, Magnificent Seven was a remake of Seven Samurai as well. So, right. And, and I wouldn't call it a failing. It was interesting, to say the least. And uh, yeah. For all the uh, John Wayne stuff I'd seen, I hadn't seen uh, John Wayne's True Grit. So, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. versed in both of those now. And yeah. I read the book. It made me read the book. Mm -hmm. So. I got to do The Revenant next, which, like, that's not a oh, remake. Yeah. But there's there's a book of it, at least. And the book's better, I've been told. <laughs> well, perhaps. I, to be expected. A it's a brutal fucking movie. Jesus. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so so uh, I, I will be going out and doing that. And, and uh, to be honest... This made me interested in the 2016 one, too, which you probably watching Westerns and you're you're just well more well versed in current movies than I am. Yeah. I was not aware until renting the Magnificent Seven that one had come out in 2016. I missed any advertisements or release notices for that movie. I didn't even know it existed. So, yeah, it, it didn't receive a a lot of press and B. It wasn't I've seen most of it. It's not amazing. It's just kind of boring more than anything. Um, it's pretty much this. It's the story is distinctly different in a lot of ways, but it's still it kind of misses on a lot of the beats. It's very honestly, I'll just say it's, it's very whitewashed. Like it's um the whole plot of it is like you know, the main character is played by um I think Denzel Washington, but all other things it's like it's a very white American town and all these incredibly white actors and everything like Chris Pratt is in there, which like, I think he's fine, but eh. <laughs> he's in, he's in too much. And that's the, it's not his fault. Yeah. Particularly it's the people that go after him, but you know, he's going to wear out his welcome and it's going to be unfortunate for everybody. Yeah. It's just it, it, the movies, that the two movies that we got and Lord knows we could do more, more episodes on the magnificent seven i've seen there are so many fucking remakes of this movie but i think the two we have are definitely the best of them because they don't start because like you can only really work a concept so like a very specific concept so much and the problem with you know modern movies is they are not great at wider characterization or like well yeah wider characterization especially when there's this many characters on display and so you end up getting moments of it is both excruciatingly slow and also incredibly forgettable <laughs> and so it's just yeah the ones we got i i give the 61 more crap than it really deserves it did plenty of good work for you know the characters it has 
it's just it's it gets weird once you start getting into the modern era with it. Right. And I get that. And, and I I I'm happy with the choices. I don't have any problem with the choices, especially because, you know, like these are the two they are the most well-known ones, obviously, Seven Samurai, because it started the whole thing. But this version of the Magnificent Seven, I would say, is the quintessential, you know, Magnificent Seven movie. Yeah. You know, if you're talking about the title and the, the Western setup and everything, that like the 61 is the one. But also yeah. because it was the first one. It was the first remake. They were back to back. And like with... uh. A Star is Born, we could have easily just ignored what Price Hollywood and compared the first one to uh, the sequel with uh, um, Judy Garland. But we didn't do that. You know, we went with the original stuff. We went OG before they, you know, all the fucking Hollywood rules were put in place. So it had more fun scenes. (laughs) There's that, too. That was more fun. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot more fun. But yeah, I think this is a better comparison. Like, we could have totally just ignored Seven Samurai and compared the 60 version to the most recent one from 2016. We could have done that. Uh, yeah. Probably wouldn't have been as interesting a watch. It would have been very one-sided. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just, I'm I, just saying. I, I, I mean, you're probably right. I could be surprised, but also just the fact that like when we did, that would also be just too much of one genre for me. Sometimes we get that. Uh, and thankfully there's a lot of mix up with, you know, a lot of these we will tackle like, the original Scarface, which was this sort of noir gangster story. But then the 83 one, it's still a gangster story, but there's a lot of action and drama. There's drama in both, but it, it relies yeah. more on the what the genre is. You know, right. there's a bit of innovation. Whereas if we did 60 in 2016, Magnificent Seven, it probably would have been the same type of thing, just done differently. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's 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 fun watching stuff like Scarface because it's like it's very cool watching essentially the cultural changing of the guard where it's like what a gangster movie was in the 30s is very different from what a gangster movie is in the 70s or 80s. Sorry. Right. Yeah. And then in this one, it's just kind of cool, you know, again, seeing the cultural differences, but also more aptly the cultural similarities. On that note, to getting into the back into the finer points of the movie, one thing that I really felt by the end especially with like the death scenes in both cases how do you compare the acting quality between both of these or how like how similar do would you say the levels are or how different would you say the levels are uh you said for the death scenes i guess in particular i mean i including the death scenes within it but the acting in general just the death scenes always seem to like really put a fine point in it in certain cases so I don't know if this is the actors or if it's the characters. Because for, say, a character like Kyuzo in The Seven Samurai, he's supposed to be this really stone-faced guy. You know, he's like, they're Buster Keaton, I guess. You know, (laughs) completely emotionless. And that's his character. So I get that. And maybe that's why I related to him, because he felt like he fit the most into what he was supposed to be. But a lot of the other characters sort of acted the same way. They'd be a bit jovial they'd laugh here and there but a lot of the times you know it was dead serious no nonsense because of what they were dealing with and the only one who ever got to shine emotionally consistently was Kikuchio. but i feel like it just made him feel more hammy especially whenever he like laughed i was like oh yeah. can you stop cackling the way you're cackling <laughs> yeah at a certain point i started to just kind of write that off as kind of more just like 
cultural performance differences because I've seen that in other uh, Japanese Probably. movies. The, the very over the top uh, show butter type, which is like you know, it's it's the same as we mentioned it. We mentioned it in the Metropolis episode, but it's just the differences between you know um, Eastern culture tropes characters versus Western culture trope characters. It's like we both have them. It's just they're more jarring to us once we see the other. Right, and that probably fits in a bit more over there if that if we consider that to be the case. So maybe they don't yeah. take as much notice to it. But for me, who... I, I mean, I've seen a fair amount of anime, but if we're talking live-action Japanese films, I could probably count on one hand <laughs> those Honestly, that I've seen, and three of them are Akira Kurosawa movies. Yeah. So, so it, it definitely stood out to me. On, to that end... Comparing it to, and, and when I'm talking about these, I'm mainly talking about the Seven Samurai. There's, or the Magnificent Seven, you know, the core seven cast members themselves. There's obviously other actors and characters in the movie, yeah. uh, but those are, that's sort of the core group. So comparing it to the Seven from the Magnificent Seven, I feel like they have, uh, with the exception of Yul Brenner, they have a wider range of emotions that they go through. But the hamminess, the hamminess that they have doesn't stand out because everyone else around them is, you know, uh, stoic. It stands out because it's it's just that over the top. Like you yeah. mentioned the death scenes. Robert Vaughn's death scene was ridiculous. Like <laughs> yeah. he's up against a wall, like clutching himself, going like, uh, uh, and he's smearing his face against the side of the wall as he drops to the ground. It's like a Shakespearean uh, <laughs> death, like fucking a man. <laughs> like, don't you, he was he was literally chewing the scenery. Yeah, exactly. He's trying to get a big old bite of the brick, the stones there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when uh, you, I'm sorry, I'm bad with the character names, but and I don't have them in front of me. But when Yul Brenner, I, I know who you're talking about at least, and like I, I imagine most people who watch these would remember the American actors more than the characters because they're all pretty generic character names. I I mean yeah, but when he when he's holding Brad Dexter as he's dying and they're doing like that whole routine, I kind of mm-hmm. sighed a little bit where it's like, Tell me about the rabbits, George, you know, like uh <laughs> but this is post death and that was pre death. Um yeah. but it's the same it's the same feeling and I just kinda had to groan a bit and move past it. So uh it, it's weird because there was really hammy acting in Seven Samurai, but I don't know that it was necessarily hammy. One, because like you said, the cultural differences, that's probably just a more varied thing over there. But also it stood out more because everyone else had like a stick up their ass, like they weren't doing anything. <laughs> and to that end, everyone in the American version was way over the top and it shouldn't have stood out as much as it did because they were all emoting. But it did because that's just how how over the top it could be at sometimes with some of these actors. Yeah. It's just, it's that, that is one of the very many failings of, especially a lot of those like kind of mid age Westerns is that they really do just love to fucking ham it up. And it's just, it's hard for me to love them as much as I do. And that's why I usually do tend to either go for very old Westerns, foreign Westerns or modern Westerns. Cause they actually have some decent ac- acting chops. But you can definitely see in those kind of middle-aged westerns that you can basically see uh, some Fox exec standing off the side being like, okay, but how will a, you know, a very lucrative 10-year-old boy look at this character? And, you know, does he want this emotional journey or does he want the fun, crazy acting that'll make him buy toys and costumes? Mm-hmm. 
So it's like, <gasps> oh my god, I yeah, you can I, you can <laughs> see the dollar signs floating around in the, in those like in that really particular age of movies like between like sixty to seventies really more than anything. Man, I like just like you said, he's up there. Charles Bronson's character, I enjoyed him. I enjoy Charles Bronson and a lot of stuff, but the storyline that they stuck his character with sucked, and I felt so bad because yeah. it was exactly that. They had kids in the Seven Samurai, just like goofball kids. They're all laughing. They're getting teased when they're being handed out food, you know, because kids exist. You don't have to yeah. write kids out. They exist. But they give Charles Bronson this trio of do-nothings that are like, <laughs> Uh, we're going to follow you. We hope hope that we can plant flowers on your grave when you're dead. And it's, it's, they didn't need to have this thing with these kids and give them that many lines, especially because why is it in 1960? We can't grasp the, grasp the fact that 90% of child actors aren't good at acting. <laughs> so unless it's a movie that calls for a kid to be in the scene, you don't need to write that in there other than, well, little boys are going to look up to this. They're going to want to go out and buy uh, pop guns and whatever. So let's, you know, insert them, which is the failing of a lot of American show shows and movies where yeah. you, you want to see adults do cool things as a kid. I don't know about you, but I always hated it when there was a show about like young adults solving crimes or fighting bad guys or whatever. And they wrote in the kid character that was always like, I want to be a part of the group. Because you're supposed to identify with the kid? I was like, no, get him out of there. He's annoying. Yeah. It's like, I want to watch the competent people. <laughs> I don't want to identify with a child that messes everything up for everybody. Yeah. And and you do kind of bring it up, you know, and I, I do like the point that you made about, you know, Seven Samurai's kids is that them being there is just like, okay, yeah, there are kids here. And it's meant to just acknowledge that. And it really did feel for all the world like they really did just have a bunch of kids on the set and told them, hey, pretend like you're just little villagers in the old days and you're just trying to have fun with the samurai. You, you probably wouldn't have needed to tell them that much. Just tell them, hey, go hang out with the samurai. And they probably would have thought, fuck yeah. It's and a real just, samurai. Yeah, they were probably just like, you know, hang, hanging out with Kikuchio. Uh, yeah. And just like, those are genuine reactions and everything. And I bet you that actor probably, I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to bet bottom dollar that he did just like ad lib a lot of the interactions with him. And I'm sure that actor did a lot of that in general. Cause it's just his character just seems so off the wall. It seems impossible. It was fully scripted and just, you know, he just played into the character more. And I think that is kind of one of the main reasons I like so much of the more in between bits of seven samurai more is that they do a lot of stuff like that, where it's just, it's not necessarily for a particular purpose. It's just like, Oh, this is a moment we see this character, lounging around or resting or talking with his other characters or having this direct interaction. It's like, it's lending itself to this being a more, if not believable story and at least relatable story where it feels like you really does build these guys up as human. Even, you know, the time, even though a lot of them do kind of get shafted as far as that goes, you know, they're like, there are solid like three characters that basically get no major, major character development, but Beyond that, even with like Kyo's Kyozo, the idea of him being stoked and everything, but there are the moments like after the young samurai whose name I've immediately forgotten. Uh Kinker was it? Ken, uh, Ken. Ka Ka uh Katsushiro. Katsushiro. Um Ka Katsushiro. You know, after he <laughs> after he um you know, just 
basically prostrates himself to him saying like you're like literally tells him you're a magnificent person and then goes off and you can see him have a very genuine smile like yeah it's like i'm i'm proud i'm happy that i made this like this young essentially kid proud and it's just cool seeing how they interact with each other and just so much of magnificent seven's characters it really does seem like they're just trying to trying to elicit sympathy like specifically trying to elicit emotions from the audience whereas in seven samurai it really just feels like if you have emotions towards this that's just because you relate to it naturally and so i yeah. think it just that's my main thing between the two is that seven samurai just feels so much more natural despite all the moments of it just being like yeah it's still very hammy <laughs> you do you do bring up a good point with that i think the magnificent seven could have used more of those down-to-earth world-building elements to make it sort of feel more real. Maybe it's a crime to say this, but I feel like uh, for the good that Seven Samurai does with it, it could have used a lot less. <laughs> I feel like it had too much at some points. I'm not, yeah, I'm not about to say that it didn't go overboard a little. Um, I think, yeah, um, yeah, it's a long fucking movie. It could have, it could have cut out a decent amount, but it's just, it's hard, it's hard to really fault them with how with between the writing and the directing of it because it's like i was enraptured with pretty much the whole thing and i'm trying to remember the name for it now because we, we talked oh um and we talked about it in the borrowers and arietti movies it's the mm. concept of the japanese concept of ma which is just moments where nothing in particular is really happening it's kind of giving you this if not a breath from the action it's kind of just giving you a moment to kind of set the scene more and oh <laughs> You see that in a, you obviously see that in Japanese movies all the time, especially you know animated ones. But it's it's here in spades, if only if in different tones, you know, because you get those moments before the battle, and it really does give you this feeling of just the strain these people are under before, most likely leading towards their own, like if not their deaths, the deaths of their loves loved ones, and so it just it really lends itself to the air of desperation that these characters really have and 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 you want to talk about ma i will say that uh it still sticks in my head and i think about it every now and then but one of my favorite moments in recording this podcast to this date is during the winnie the pooh episode discussing winnie the pooh and uh oh yeah <laughs> it's ma implications yeah just the moments where it's like oh yeah he's just here sitting and thinking and oh it's these moments of contemplation between these moment-to-moment actions versus the modern the more recent one just like oh it's just point for point for point for point for point very very bouncy comedic animated fun oh boy so uh i've been waffling a bit a bit between the two where it's like well this one does this well this one doesn't do it horribly you know and i haven't brought up anything i guess explicitly negative about either but something that i will say um, and I'd like to get your opinions on this. How do you feel about the ending of Seven Samurai compared to the ending of The Magnificent Seven? Because uh, in my view, they are beat for beat the same story-wise, but they both feel very different to me. And I know why. I just want to get your take yeah. on that. Um... And I get what you mean. I am glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up at some point, but I think I started to forget. I definitely, I res, I definitely think I like Seven Samurai's ending better, simply by you know 
the tone that it was setting up throughout it, you know, the whole point of the concept of the movie is that fact that this is essentially a suicide charge, albeit, you know, a suicide defense, you know, obviously. And there is just the overshadowing feeling of we are only holding on by the skin of our teeth and it's going to take pure dedication to this cause to survive. And it the ending that it gives us is... You know, it, it, I don't really touch into it super well in the ending, especially uh, in the synopsis. But it ends on a very dour note. It's, you know, the final three survived and they're just watching from a distance as these farmers are having this planting ceremony, presumably, for the new har- for the upcoming harvest. Because, um, you know, they're planting rice paddies and I know those grow in different seasons. And so they're celebrating and everything. And they're obviously off being stoic, just thinking about all that they've lost and how much they really have not gained much of anything at all of of true, like, material. And then there's the moment where, I've, I've forgotten his name, uh, immediately again, uh, Katsushiro has actually passed by Shino as she's going off to take part in the planting. And you expect, like, oh, this is the moment where Shino will kind of put her stuff down and she'll jump into his arms and they'll be happy and everything. But no, she's continues on her way and you know looks mournful of it but continues and happily starts planting and singing along with the rest of her villagers and katsushiro is just forced to kind of watch on as he's just kind of left alone and it's just it's so cool seeing a you know that this story began with the villagers and really it's meant to end with the villagers you know and b just seeing the how the deep cultural feeling between all these characters of you know they could have these moments of oh we will be together forever but it's like they're so stringently tied to their own cultures that no that's just not how it's gonna go it's like you dedicate yourself to your home and to your cause and that's that and the villagers will always have a cause because they're farmers but the samurai barely had one to begin with and now they're left with that exact same situation and so it really really does lend itself to the tone that was kind of putting putting up to the whole thing of this is at best mildly optimistic versus Magnificent Seven basically ending on oh you know all is well I mean we're dead but you know we're still got an upbeat attitude well if not upbeat at least a nonchalant attitude because hey we're cowboys and the one dude gets to go keep screwing the pretty you know Mexican lady (laughs) so it's like it just it just is felt so jarring by comparison it was like huh I mean, okay, sure. <laughs> Man, you, we, I mean, we haven't been fighting or arguing, but uh, most, uh, a lot of this episode has been disagreement on different facets. I knew that at yeah. some point we were going to agree on something and you hit that. I, our brain, <laughs> our brains lined up so well. It's scary, but I, that's why yeah. I wanted you. That's why I wanted you to go first. Cause I already I had knew what I was, I, I already knew what I was going to say, uh, but yeah. it was pretty much exactly that. The, yeah. You know, I, I, I like the ending of the Seven Samurai more, and it's it's maybe part of it is because it fits the tone, but another part of it within me, as I've mentioned before on the show, is I I like movies that dare to do dark endings, and not like a student film where the main character dies. You know, because every student film has the main character die because they don't know how to end it. More so, just the fact that uh. Maybe less so now, but for the longest time, you know, that was a daring thing to do because test audiences generally, it, it wasn't about it being thought provoking. It was like, well, I wanted to be entertained. That ending wasn't entertaining. So yeah. 
a lot of movies shy away from stuff like that, and that's what the that's what the Magnificent Seven felt like it was sort of doing. You know, I I feel in part that's why they introduced the three kids because they put they put flowers on Charles Bronson's grave there for a shot, and it's like, oh, that's sweet. The kids are mourning him, and then you know, uh, Chico gets to go off and be with the girl and you can see her smiling as opposed to the seven samurai. Like she, she went back to work and it shows a close up of her face as she's singing the song, but she is not happy. She's not smiling. Yeah. It's, it's a dour situation. The, you know, it just rained during the battle. And so it's still overcast. This is like the, the aftermath of the, the terrible storm that just happened, you know, weather wise and battle wise. And it's 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 overall dour, and it fits with the message of, you know, this was a victory for them, not for us, and it never will be. Whereas, you know, it's bright and sunny, you don't think about it too much, it didn't have to rain, but it could have been cloudy. I don't know, the environmental nature of the Magnificent Seven's ending doesn't help what we're saying at all. <laughs> but it just feels more upbeat while Yul Brenner is standing there saying, we lost. So the the tone is kind of, you know, abandoned there. You don't, you don't really feel it. And I, I feel like that's a misstep and that they, maybe whoever wrote the screenplay or directed it wanted to have an ending that was more similar to the seven samurai, but movies weren't doing that at the time because yeah. audiences didn't like that. And that's a shame. Yeah. It's, it, it is de- it, it for as much as we talk about how much, you know, how, how many people talk about how much they love, like, certain periods of American film, it is a tragedy that there's just such a long period of it that's just tinted and tainted by this whole combination of, you know, stringent Hollywood rules and expectations of the audience of like, or should I say expectations that they assume the audience would have for these movies? Cause you could have had so much more depth and everything to all these great films. And, you know, there are obviously still films with depth and everything. They're just very far and few between by comparison. And it's just like, it seems like, you know, so much of what came out of Japan for a period of time, obviously a lot of it was, you know, cheesy tripe as with most film industries, but so much of it is just like basically everything that came from Kurosawa was, you know, plated in gold. And so it was, it's just, it's just always, like I said, it's just tragic to see like, how long of a period from like 1950 to 19 like mid 70s it just kind of couldn't really stretch its wings all that much and it was like the one period of time when there was the most movies could have gotten made and most of them were for a while and you know this weird part about that too is that we started getting more movies that were breaking the boundaries around that time but we still had fight fight back not just or push back not just from studios but also from the audiences that were testing viewing the feature it's like well the test audience doesn't like it and i'm gonna bring this up but i just have to note this has been the callback episode we have referenced like six or seven other episodes that we've yeah. done it's all been culminating to this point it's been yeah waiting I, I jokingly mentioned before we recorded that this should have been our our season finale but uh, oh well <laughs> It doesn't, <laughs> but I, 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 I get what you mean now, especially now, but we, we discussed this when we did the little shop of horrors episode, because yeah. the version you watched had, uh, you happened to watch the, the version with the original uncut ending yeah. and you didn't even realize it. You thought that was the real ending, which is 
much more dark and sinister because the main character and the love interest both die. You know, the plants, there's a musical number as the plants take over the city and you leave with a fourth wall break with Audrey 2, like breaking through the screen, which isn't as impressive when you're watching at home. But when you were in the theaters at the time, people were probably roaring. Uh, at least that's what you would think because test audiences didn't like the unhappy ending. This mm-hmm. was a comedy, but it was also a horror movie in 1984, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street had already come out at this point, and they have those sort of all's well endings, but is it, you know? And, and yeah. So what do you expect from going to see a horror movie? But the test audiences didn't, didn't like it, so they filmed a new ending that's like two minutes long that quickly wraps up like, oh, uh, uh, Seymour and Audrey, uh, they end up getting married, they buy a house, uh, a, a cute little house, which is exactly from the song she sings about, they run off happily. And then very briefly, there's the horror horror movie cliche where it goes to the ground and there's like a baby Audrey too. And it's like, is it over? Wink. And they, I, in my opinion, they botched that movie. And yeah. so it was still happening then and it still happens sometimes now. Yeah. I, 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 I'm I sure I could think of an example of given the time, but you know, <laughs> it's just, they're just so often just movies that seem like they could have so much potential, but it's. And I can't say I'm not going to be one of those types. It's like, damn, test audiences—they're—they're they're ruining their the PC culture and blah blah blah. I don't—I I don't have hard opinions on anything except everything. Blah. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm I'm projecting from work. A lot of frustrations. <laughs> I, I get you. I get you. Uh, um, but you know, it's I can't really fault test audiences necessarily. But at the same time, it's like it does end up pretty thoroughly you know, sidelining a bunch of what could really be incredible films. So it's just, it's hard to see all of that and really think about the potential that all these other movies would have had. You know, I imagine like, I imagine if Magnificent Seven could have had the kind of acting slash directing chops that, you know, good, the bad and the ugly had. I mean, that would have been incredible. Yes, (laughs) I agree. It's just, you know, it probably would have been, just as long as Seven Samurai, albeit, but still. Right, and I, and I want to go on the record since you brought it up as well. Uh, not to harbor on this point for too much longer, uh, but yeah, I don't hate the con. I don't hate the people in test audiences either because people like what they like. Uh, I I just hate the concept of them because it. I understand when you make a movie, you put stuff into the budget, and when you release it, you want to at least make your money back, and you want to make a profit on it. That's how you continue in the business. I get that. It's a money-driven world. But the moment that you rely solely on the feedback of 60 people sitting in a room watching it, and you use that to make all your decisions, it's not an artistic venture anymore, because you're compromising what you wanted to the views of a couple of people. And they have the right to their own opinion about it, but... Uh, I I don't know if it, if it's a venture that you believe in, uh, even if nobody else does, I I feel like you should you should stick to it or else you're compromising your integrity. I don't know. That's just me. Yeah. Um, and that is and that does put it like that does really put it into perspective the way you say that it's like the fact that at the end of the day, sixty people determined you know what could have been an incredible you know like to continue using you know little shop of horrors what could have been a super interesting ending and a super interesting statement put forward. I mean, like we, and if we want to go even more for call up, callbacks, there's the, you know, the, 
hellish history that is Blade Runner's release. Oh, and, boy. Yeah. And just, you know, how botched that was when you get right down to it. It's just the idea that 60 individual people had such a wholehearted impact on what is essentially American culture. You know, it's just like it is, you know, stuff that's meant to stand the test of time now. I mean, people, you know, only recently Blade Runner was considered to be officially released. Right. And who who even knows if that's going to be the final version? Yeah, who fucking knows? Who knows what the future will bring? Uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's interesting to think about. Just like, you know, it very much seemed like Kurosawa got to make the movie he wanted to with Seven Samurai. Whereas, you know, Magnificent Seven, you know, I don't even remember the name of the director. That's how, <laughs> that's how much it's not, it's not, you know as distinctive i'm not saying it's a lesser quality it's still a very good film but it's not a truly artistic vision that came that came to fruition you know what i think that's probably the best capper to the entire discussion is is what you just said and i didn't i didn't even think about that i wasn't planning that going into that whole (laughs) sideline about test audiences but yeah one is sort of an artistic venture and the other could have started out that way i mean you can argue whether well, it started. It started off as a remake, so automatically it's not an artistic venture. I don't buy that because you can add your own flourishes, you can modernize it, update it, do this with it. Phantom of the Paradise is interesting, and that's purely art, art uh, artistic, even though it's a remake of Phantom of the Opera. But they they make put it in an interesting place, and they added all these unique elements to it that make it its own. It's 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 just a matter of it. It felt like a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And that was made with several people in the room that maybe kept stopping the camera, like, uh, maybe do this instead. Uh, what if he did that? That'll appeal. Yeah. And like, and even thinking back on it, it really does feel like it had some amounts of like some grasping hands towards some of those, like, if not artistic ventures, at least something a bit more serious. Cause like the opening, like, first of all, the whole, th- it's set around protecting a Mexican village, it's like, okay, first of all, it's a non-American location, and they're meant to be the direct good guys. That's, even by, if, if you did that today, that might get flack. <laughs> um, like, yeah. the fact that, yeah, just like that, I mean, that, that shows how the world fucking is. But then, like, even even disregarding that, the first scene we see our main character, Yul Brenner's character, he's taking it upon himself to give a proper burial to a man that people of that town are insanely adversely racist towards because he was a Native American man. Like, the whole point of it is, like, he's... He literally gets shot at for just trying to give a dead man his proper rights. And it's like, that's a super straight-up real guy. It's rare that I see the blatant racism of the Old West brought up so directly sometimes. It's like, you normally only see that in more modern movies. And, yeah, obviously it touches on it in older movies, but this is... Yeah, I kind of it. It kind of glazes over the fact that that's a super intense scene, and not to mention that is sort of what I was talking about. If you want to go artistically, uh, I'm not saying that that's like uh, the Citizen Kane of scenes or anything. Right? Yeah. Uh, as, as hackneyed as I think that phrase is, but yeah. <laughs> um, that that is unique in that they put that spin on it, and there was nothing in the original source material to have that be the introduction of Yul Brynner's character, there is a similarity in Seven Samurai in that uh, a thief kidnaps a child and he's hiding out in a barn, uh, which is the introductory scene. Yeah. So the scene is there and you get to see, you know, him face adversity 
overcome it, and he's calm, cool, and collected. Those are the only threads, but they went in a completely different direction with it as they have their right to do, and it was interesting. There should yeah. have been more more touches like that other than just, well, the setting's different. Yeah, and that's like, and that's kind of, that was one of the core things we wanted to go into this show to see. It's like when movies or directors actually have some respect both for the remake, but also the respect to do something different with it. And not just because like, oh, like, like you said, it's just a different setting. It's like we can have the same scene with the same message done differently and done more importantly, well, <laughs> and that whole scene really fucking puts a pin in it. And it's just like, yeah. Like it's rare that we see genuine quality like that and genuine, you know, side by side comparisons in a lot of the movies we've seen. Sometimes it's just like, okay, this okay, so this movie did this super deep scene with this like really kind of long drawn out concept and it was brilliantly done, and this other one had like a shootout. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> Looking at you, Jackal. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Have we referenced every, uh, Karate Kid? I think now we've covered every episode <laughs> of the show up to this point. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, normally Karate Kid we would have referenced a few times in other ones, so it's it's weird that we don't have one we could work with here. <laughs> it's like, can't even really say, like, oh, they're both in Asia? It's like, no, it's fucking, one's in California, the other's in China, so, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I I honestly don't know where to go from there. Yeah, I mean... I think we've said about as much as we possibly can say. I think I've pr- I've pretty clearly shown my hand of I definitely prefer Seven Samurai more, if only because I just it is just dripping with its its own style and just the quality of the act. Like, if not the acting, at least just the development of some of the characters. That I just it's hard for me to say anything truly bad about it. That can't just be summed up as. It was kind of hammy at times, and it could have cut out certain, like, certain chuff. But even then, you know, it just, it feels like it would have lost something. It's It really doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like any scene was added just because. Just because, like, oh, I needed to pad the runtime, or oh, I needed more information about this character that I forgot about. It's like, I feel like everything was there deliberately. So it was hard to say any one scene that could have gone, and just... And I can't, and I can't even say I disliked the Magnificent Seven. It was good. It was a good western. I've seen certainly worse westerns. Um, most of John Wayne stuff, I'm just not a fan of. <laughs> um, fucking like him as goddamn Genghis Khan. That fucking movie. Um, it's just yeah, I can't. I can't remember the name of it. It's the one that ultimately killed him because they filmed yeah. him in like a, in a radioactive crater. Like they're fucking idiots. Um, but. Yeah, it's still a good it's still a good little film and it's got its moments and it's got its genuine you can see those moments of it tried to have genuine heart and actual soul behind it rather than just being like essentially, you know, what so many westerns end up being in that time era just being like Errol Flynn but on land, you know. Yeah. And so it's I can't say either of these were bad. They were both very very good, especially Seven Samurai for me though. And that's honestly probably just me because a combination of, A, I think I just like Kurosawa a lot, even though I think this is really the first one I've seen all the way through. And B, I just love the culture of samurai. I think it's just a fascinating subject to me. Right, that's fair. Yeah. I'm guessing you're having a slightly harder time deciding. Not at all, actually, to be honest. So uh, here's the thing. Maybe this is apparent to listeners. Maybe this isn't. When we go into the show... 
it isn't what we discuss and the conclusions we get to they're not necessarily planned but i feel like we both go into the episode knowing what we're going to say and what we're going to talk about yeah it's ra- it's rare that we come out with like a different opinion that we go in with it happens but it's rare it's it's very rare especially for me because i don't know that i've done it once i i've been on the fence and then been swayed to one side but i've never gone in being like i like this one and coming out i like the other one instead never Uh, i know i've had i know i've had one at least but i can't remember exactly which one which is fine yeah um but i will say I plan to talk about the ending to both of these movies going in because as soon as I got to, as soon as I got done watching uh because I did make as I said I watched Magnificent 7 first. Uh yeah. when I saw Seven Samurai's ending I was like that's a better ending and I don't even have to think about why. I think I know why. So I wanted to discuss it with you uh to get your take on it. I did not expect the artistic rabbit hole that would come out of it. See, that's what we don't plan what we're going. We plan little pinpoints that we're going to discuss, but that doesn't mean that we know exactly where the conversation is going to take us. Um, and I definitely came into this discussion and it might've been evident from the beginning, liking Magnificent Seven more because I found it more enjoyable. And I felt like the characters as a whole were more enjoyable. I certainly liked the characters in Seven Samurai, but a lot of them felt sort of one note or on the same level as one another. And so imagine, you know, Seven Samurai at one place on my list and then Magnificent Seven slightly higher. After that discussion, we just had about artistic integrity and, you know, the purpose of someone making a film versus, you know, how a studio impacts what could have been great. Seven Samurai did not go up at all in my in my mind. Uh, but Magnificent Seven definitely went down. <laughs> and I think I enjoyed watching Magnificent Seven more, but I like Seven Samurai more now. Just I as a whole, I think mm. I like it better. And, and I think that's a good thing because I respect it. And I I feel like I would watch it again, even though yeah. it was long, even though it was long and it middled. <laughs> I feel I feel like I would watch both of these again, but and you know and, and I'm trying to tread a fine line here because I don't want it to be like, well, a film is good if you can respect it, because I don't necessarily think that's the case. I don't like Citizen Kane because I think it's boring to watch. I can respect the people behind it and what it did, but that doesn't make me like it. But for some reason, that respect makes me like Seven Samurai more. And I feel like, but, but in a different way, because I feel like I can watch it and I can get more out of it now Mm. viewing it in a different way. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's difficult for me to say anything different than that. It's really is ultimately just the amount of respect I just have for this movie. (laughs) And it's, yeah, I, I was honestly trying to think, I was like, how do I expand on this point? It's like, nope, you pretty much hit it right on the head. I can't, it's like, I think the main one being is like, I often talk about, you know, what movie I would watch again. That ultimately is kind of like my last resort um, decider. Because ultimately, I, and obviously we've, we've expounded multiple times on the show about how neither of us are like the stereotypical like film student type where it's like, oh, this 
ultra obscure French film is the true art meaning of like an artistic film and all that sort of thing. Like we, we right. like movies. We like fucking movies that we can go in and say that was cool. I had a good time. Even if we can immediately toss it out of our minds like the next day. It's Do like, you... I will have a better time with that than any French bullshit. But with that being said, I do still ultimately know that movies are the modern art form. They are one of the most important parts of modern art. You know, there's some debate to be had about video games, but I think ultimately video games will just be games. I think, you know, there's only so much you can really do with them. But movies are, until we find some other leap and bound in technology or whatever that would allow us to make a new true art form movies are it and ultimately it's gonna be just the quality of the film that i like and so it's just it's hard to say seven samurai isn't anything other than a true artistic piece it's a good one it's also one that's entertaining (laughs) yeah i agree with you and and for anyone if, if you've been listening to the show in the past then yeah. you obviously already know this, but for if for some reason this is someone's first episode, you <laughs> definitely welcome, welcome to the shit show. First of all, <laughs> <laughs> and you definitely know that this is not. We're not like, I mean, maybe to some degree, but we're not trying to be, you know, snooty art house film critics either. Because although maybe it comes across that to some degree in this episode, just go back to the previous episode and just hear <laughs> what our final thoughts were. Because how many like film scholars could listen to that and probably be up in arms that we preferred (laughs) a film that was abandoned and lost and edited to hell over something from the forties that is considered a classic with classic actors. Yeah. It's like, it's like they would, they would tear us to shreds. It's just what we like at the end of the day. That's what all this is, is what we, is what we prefer. And yeah, you said it perfectly. I think both of these are good for different reasons, but you know, I think one, one is better for a multitude of reasons. And a lot of that is uh, the respect I have for it. Yeah. It's just, you know, I'm glad to be kind of the, not necessarily moderate voice to film critiquing in the world, but definitely a nice little middle ground to be found between ultra film buffs who would love the hell out of 1940s devil and Daniel Webster and the super diehard Marvel fans that are essentially just the Harry Potter fans after they lost interest in their, in the one book they read. (laughs) And I, and I'm being harsher than I need to be, but you know, no, they need to hear it. Yeah. It's like, y'all need to chill a little. It's like, they're terrible. They're terribly written movies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um, with like rare exceptions, you guys need to to experience experience new things and get out there. Even if you're going to hate it, we watched two things last time that and we hated both of them. But it was an experience, and we can talk about it now. Yeah, and it's just like you know, so much of what we do on the show is us talking about us having strained like not not I wouldn't necessarily call them strange tastes. It's just having genuinely individualist tastes between all these different movies and that we like them for all these different reasons. And I think that just kind of needs to be expressed a bit more. It's like, I think so often we can kind of cornhole, like cornhole ourselves into our opinions about all these films. It's like, yeah, it's like, I like a few Marvel movies. I also dislike most of them. I, you know, I hate most art house films, but I would, you know, kill for like cool hand Luke alone. <laughs> it's just like, I don't, it's like, it's, it's, 
just all over the place, and I think that needs to be expressed more, you know? People have different tastes. I've I've said on this show countless times, and guess what? October's coming up, folks. But Woo! I'm a huge B horror movie fan. And yeah. I that's And I will just... never understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and I can admit to myself and to others, a lot of the films that I really like from that genre are horrible, offensive pieces of shit. But guess what? <laughs> I, I think Gone with the Wind is a good movie. But I like yeah. Jeepers Creepers way more than Gone with the Wind. <laughs> yeah. And I personally hate Gone with the Wind. It's like I, just, I think it's oh. so friggin' boring. There you go. It takes all kinds. Yeah. Uh, which, by the yeah. way, that's an episode we can do in the future because there was a made-for-TV sequel like 50 years later. Oh, fuck me. That's gonna, that's gonna be a fun one. That'll be the finale in a decade. Oh, God. <laughs> when we, we, we truly hit bottom barrel. Oh, boy. Uh, Holly, so- Hollywood keeps outdoing us. They'll keep coming. I'm still excited for I'm still excited for Dune coming up, so Oh man, I am too. Not even <laughs> just for the new movie, but just and I've said this on the show before too, but I yep. I really want to talk about a David Lynch property. Yeah. So. so that'll be fun. Yeah. So um I'm looking at my uh thing here and obviously this is gonna get edited down in various places, but we're approaching the two hour mark on the recording. Yeah, this is <laughs> so this uh, is one of the longer ones we've done, so uh sorry people, but at the same time we had shit to say <laughs> yeah uh i so i don't have necessarily too many places to go with this i i assume you're in the same boat we capped it pretty well i think yeah i think that was about as capped as we've ever made an episode so I, i'm pretty i'm pretty proud of it yeah uh, that might be one of my new favorite moments so uh and yeah. we already discussed what our favorite was so i'm just gonna ask you do you have any any uh anything similar that you would like to plug oh i mean like Basically anything else by Kurosawa is worth your time. I know that's you know kind of cheating with saying for similar things, but you know I I still need to see Senjuro Senjuro in in uh, full earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, but just so much of his stuff is just so dripping with his style, and just that if you ever wonder like oh where do all these samurai tropes come from, where do all these like cowboy tropes come from, Kurosawa basically made all of them. <laughs> Or at least codified them, um, and as far as westerns go, I mean, like we even mentioned it in there, like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Really, just the whole fistful of dollars trilogy. Um, you know, True Grit, like we the the remake one that we had talked about before. That one still holds up really well. Um, right. I am hesitant to say The Revenant, like I said before, because like it's it's well made and it's fucking it does not let up but it is a brutal fucking movie like it is there is death there is dismemberment there is blood there is gore it is it just beats you over the head with it and it gets a bit much <laughs> um but otherwise it's still pretty decently made beyond that i can't really think of anyone in particular it's so hard to think of anything that could really just match Seven Samurai in a lot of the sense, if only for the fucking runtime. Um, you know, if you ever do want to watch Seven Samurai, get some friends for it. Honestly, it is an experience. I, yeah, it, I agree. It'll take some time. Otherwise, I can't think of anything in particular. I'm sure, like, that could be a thing we start doing. It's like, maybe if I think of another one, we could just post it to the, to the you know, socials or something. Oh, yeah, no, I, I've, ar- I've already uh, been tinkering with that thought. 
just for posting like the posters of what we do recommend. But if you have anything future and want to send it to me, then gl- I'll gladly do that. Yeah. That, otherwise, I think that pretty much wraps it for me. All right. I mean, you, wanted, no. you know, if you want it, we're going to talk about like the directors and all. I, I, I mean, I was kind of on the same note. What can you say about someone with the cloud of Kurosawa that hasn't already been said? Like you said, mm-hmm. go after go after his library. The obvious choice, I think, is Rashomon. It's the one that most people know and talk about. Yeah. Uh, just because it's it's so unique in its storytelling. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the same story from multiple different points of view has been adapted into various games, books, shows, movies to this point. That you know, it, it's it's unavoidable as a staple in culture. So, yeah. uh, I mean, hell, we could if we if we wanted to go really deep into the remake thing, we could just do that with fucking Reservoir Dogs. Oh yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Do do it with that King of the Hill episode. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> besides that, oh, I do want to say this. I'm sure you mentioned it during the plots, but I didn't hear it. John Sturgis, who did the Magnificent Seven. Um, I, I go check him out, I guess this was irresponsible on my part, but I completely forgot to write down other things he had directed. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that, I mean, that's his name, John Sturgis. So go see, I'm sure he's done things that I know, but I don't recognize the name, unfortunately. Oh, um, dude, he, he did the great escape. <laughs> did he? Well, there you go yeah. with Steve McQueen. <laughs> go check yeah, that sure, out. Sure enough. <laughs> oh, uh, he, also so, did, he also did a 57 production of um, The Gunfire at the OK Corral. Wait, a 57 version? Yeah. I mean, like, I didn't... Huh. huh? Okay. I mean, like, you could, like, I'm comparing that to, like, Tombstone. Right. But, well, because they're comparable. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, never mind. I, I, I was thinking of something else. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure... Hey, that might be one we could, we could do. Hey, yeah, that's a thought. I mean, it's technically a historical subject, so I don't know if you could necessarily consider it a remake, but still. <laughs> well, it's it's the same adaptation. I I mean, some of these are, that we've done already have been so loose. I would say that we could take two Abe Lincoln biographies and do it, honestly. Because <laughs> they're cu- treading the same ground, so. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, be, that's that. It, uh, it'd, be fun to do, it'd be fun to do Tombstone. That's another good Western. <laughs> well, put that put that in your uh, in your cap. Alrighty, I, that might be for next season. <laughs> well, this season's already decided, I think. Yeah, exactly. Unless we're um, doing that for the finale. Oh, uh, and which, uh, I, which I doubt. One other thing that I was gonna bring up, uh, Yul Brenner, because he is a legitimately good actor. I think he gets the shaft in this. I don't know if it was an off day for him or if it was his direction, but he really was. I think the weakest link of the bunch, just because. He doesn't get to do much, you know. Yeah. There, there's, there's not much for him to do because he has to be the the ringleader, as I said before, for all these people. But you know, check out other things that he's done. Uh, he was uh, best known or most well known for me. He was the gunslinger in Westworld, uh, oh, in the yeah, early seventies. Yeah. So that's good. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, he he played Ramses the second or Ramses the third. I don't remember in uh, the Ten Commandments, um, the Charlton Heston version, uh, which could also be a future episode because that's a remake. Um, oh, shit. Yeah. If, if we want more Yul Brenner. So, uh, <laughs> Welcome yeah, to check the Brenner out, cast. 
<laughs> we we migrated from WarnerCast to BrennerCast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, go check him out and more stuff. And uh, that's uh, that's about it for my recommendations. So I guess I'll plug the socials. Go uh, right ahead. Go ahead, and, go ahead and send us an email at theyremadeit at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episode, comments, complaints, concerns that you might have. Uh, we appreciate anything like that that we may get. Uh, go ahead and follow us at It Remade on Twitter and at They Remade It on Instagram for updates on the show, posts about movie posters, other little full circles that I do, uh, uh, things like that. Possibly, you know, links, uh, movie posters and links to where you can watch some of our recommendations. That might be fun. Yeah. Uh, and I did it for a bit. I fell off the wagon just because uh, I, I got too caught up with work, but I started with Tron and I'm going to start doing it again. The uh, day that an episode goes live, I'm going to have like a 20 second snippet from the show that I pick out of that, that day, the episode that goes live that day. And I put it on Instagram mm. uh, just in case you can't listen to it at the moment. You at least get a little, a little segment of the show. So I'm going to start doing that more often. Um, and, you know, we're on tons of podcasting platforms. Our host is anchor as always. We're on, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, Podbay, Podomatic, all those things that you can listen to podcasts on. So leave us a, a review, some uh, some stars, if you will. And, uh, you know, you know, a text review would help, too, because, you know, we, we'd like to know what, what you enjoy, what you dislike uh, so that we can improve. You know, those things are important. And we've had it in the past and I've meant to encourage it more often. But, you know, if you have you know, an obscure remake that we've hadn't realized was a remake or no one knows is a remake or just even ones that you just would like to prefer. Give it, send us a line. Like we will gladly take suggestions. I, we, I still remember that one guy that sent like a whole list. Uh, yeah. I actually should revisit that list and pick up one of those. I kind of cheated with it because I got, I got that email from him and I know I've already told the story, but it was mm -hmm. like a few days before we were recording the Spider-Man episode and he had written it on there. So I was like, well, guess what? You're getting you're getting your Spider-Man request, even though we were already going to do it. Yeah. So, you know, good fortune on his end. I or their end. I can't remember their name, but, you know, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, you know, if you're still sticking around, like, hey, thanks again for that. And honestly, we adore that sort of shit. You know, it's it is always, you know, in this day and age where people so often yell into the void and nary get an echo back it's always a nice little treat to get a little little nugget out of there oh yeah yeah just to kind of remind us that what we're doing uh, impacts a little yeah, there's there's sentient people who genuinely care so exactly yes that is more than you can imagine that we would love <laughs> yeah that means the that means the world to me it really does so thank you again yeah yeah uh. and you know the, the, it feels like this whole episode like I, I, keep, I keep thinking this should have been the season finale but it's like i'm fine that it's not because you know we still have a few ones that i'm very excited for um Definitely. especially for, <laughs> especially for october that's gonna be great yeah we um, can't end the season finale halloween is coming up and we have two horror themed episodes for october it's gonna be great potentially a bonus if we can figure out an extra one you know, oh, I, yeah, I know yeah. i know we've done that in the past if we found like you know like an extra one that we could redo but um yeah but yeah my my point to that being is that you know the so much throughout this episode we've just talked about you know our reasoning behind the show how much we've loved the show and just you know finding movies that really kind of make it worth doing it's like 
we're genuinely super passionate just to bring it to you guys. And it's just, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to know that someone might out there might find our opinions even slightly worth value, even if it's a negative value. <laughs> you know what? Some of this, some, some of this doesn't even sound like the season finale. It sounds like the series finale. Oh yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Wait, Fucking and- Kurosawa, man. I think it's, it's also the combination of this and the last episode we did. It just was like, God, these movies fucking sucked. And the amount of cultural whiplash into just like two genuinely great films. It's like, oh, yeah, we do it for a reason. If we if yeah, it made me appreciate it made me appreciate it again. If we did like nostalgia critic level reviews every time we made an episode, we probably would have stopped doing this two years ago. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's just a nice little treat to watch the movies. (laughs) Jeez. We are doing one with less foreign names next time, though. <laughs> oh boy, I, I, yep, I, and I didn't, <laughs> and I didn't mention it at the top of the show, but uh, I, I'm still trying to do my Disney thing. I might not end up making my deadline, but at least I gave it an honest try, and I'm, I'm planning on finishing it as soon as I can. But before next yeah. episode, I'm doing a deep dive into the franchise we're talking about. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> yeah. So we <laughs> expect some real expertise next episode. Hells yeah! <laughs> oh, as always, I am your, you know, the ups. I am your upstart samurai, Stuart, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gunslinging Jacob. <laughs> oh, that'd be good, cool fan art to get. <laughs> yeah, hey, fan artist, yeah. call me. You put you don't. Well, you don't have to contact. <laughs> yeah, please me. don't. <laughs> yeah, no. If you can find my number, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my. Oh. Uh, yeah, I think that'll do it. Have a good night, everybody. Good night.
many of you did they hire? Enough. New wall. There are lots of new walls all around. They won't keep me out. They'll build to keep you in. 